All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And also, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, uh, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Uh, I should also tell you that there is now room for more subscribers uh, on Chen's list and uh, for Chen's newsletter, I should say. And he is now accepting new subscribers up until uh, the 15th of October. That uh, The next time then will be January, uh, will be the next time he will accept new subscribers. So if you don't have your name on the waiting list and you're interested in subscribing, uh, go to miningstocks.com, uh, miningstocks.com. Go there now and put your name on the waiting list and you will immediately or soon thereafter receive an invitation to, uh, to subscribe. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I would like to invite you also to keep your questions and comments coming to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And I'd like to also invite you to follow me on Twitter, jtaylormedia is my handle there. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our sponsors for today's show are Vino Silver and Gold Mines, RN Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, and Kalinex Resources. Well, I'm a firm believer that we are on the precipice of a major tectonic shift in the major markets, namely the debt, equity, precious metals, and commodity markets. And that certainly is the position of Michael Oliver, who will be with me in a few minutes to discuss what his technical analysis is telling him about those major markets. Uh, He definitely does see a bull market in precious metals and commodities coming up. Uh, immediately, well, if not immediately, uh, basically at those turning points now. Uh, and likewise, he sees uh, the bull markets for uh, for equities, and I believe debt as well, uh, the debt markets to also be uh, over, uh, the bull markets uh, for in those markets to be over right now. Well, that is also uh, certainly the belief of Dr. Robert McHugh, at least with respect to equities and precious metals. He has also uh, been an occasional guest on this show. If anything, uh, the views of Dr. McHugh are more radical and catastrophic than those of Michael Oliver. Uh, In his missive to subscribers this morning, Dr. McHugh, um, regarding the stock market, uh, provided two scenarios that he thinks are likely uh, with regard to the S&P. And um, 
and he and that was issued this morning in the wee hours of today. Uh, today the the S and P opened at nineteen eighty six point ninety two. Well, here are the two scenarios that Dr. McHugh outlines. First, he says if the S and P exceeds its September seventeenth high of twenty twenty, a massive decline of four hundred to six hundred points is likely uh, to take place in a few weeks. I should correct myself and say that basically he's saying if it tops out at or around that September 17th high, not if it exceeds. I don't think he expects it to exceed. He believes that we have seen the top and the top is in. So the first scenario is that if we see the uh, S&P approaching or touching that 2020 level, that's the September high, uh, then we are in for a massive decline of uh, 400 to 600 points on the S&P, he believes, within the next few weeks. Uh, less catastrophically, a uh, second scenario is if the S&P tops out uh, considerably below that 2020 level of September 17th, uh, he sees a strong but not such a catastrophic decline. He sees something on the order of uh, 1750 to 1800 on the S&P. And to just put that into some kind of context, the S&P right now, as I'm speaking to you here uh, on the 6th of October 2015, is selling at 1980.57. We can certainly hope and pray for the second of these two scenarios because the first one uh, is much more catastrophic and as uh, McHugh suggests could be related to some horrific global event like war or a natural disaster. I mean, it is would be a, a major decline of 400 to 600 points from where it is now or from the 2020 level uh, would be a major decline, especially if it occurred over just a few weeks' time. Uh, Dr. McHugh notes that a major turn date could occur on Friday, which is a Bradley turn date, and he certainly is a student of these various uh, these various turn dates and uh, more more likely than not, uh, on those dates or very close to those dates, uh, we do see major turns in, in equity prices. On the next wave down, uh, if if uh, once the next wave down takes place, uh, McHugh sees a possible bottom in uh, mid-November or so. So we could see uh, either a very very strong, huge decline down if the first of those scenarios take place or something much less catastrophic, but neither event He's looking at sort of a mid-November turn date for a bounce higher than in the equity markets. Dr. McHugh also has a means of measuring plunge protection team activity in the stock market, and his work suggests that the president's working group was in the market in a big way on Monday when the market was jerked higher later in the day. Well, I have uh, titled today's show, How Now Do We Prepare for the Next Bubble Burst? And um, the two main questions for this show, uh, for the show this week, are first: Given pathological economic policies in place, what is the most likely outcome of a crack-up boom? What is the most likely outcome to take place? So are we going to see a crack-up boom kind of a thing that the Austrian economists have always uh, sort of been leaning towards, or might we see a bursting of the bubble, uh, an asset bubble implosion, if you will, that could take? prices of all kinds much, much lower. I mean, we certainly saw that sort of an event take place in 2008-2009. The Federal Reserve and the central banks around the world stepped in with huge amounts of, of uh, money created out of nothing, pumped it into the system, 
and it uh, would seem to have definitely stopped, at least temporarily, stopped the plunge in the equity prices and in asset prices in general. Uh, well, so that's one question we want to try to answer and get from our guests today is, are, are we likely to see an implosion in asset prices across the board? Secondly, and even great, uh, of even greater importance, I believe, uh, if we are seeing a bursting of the bubbles, of, of the asset bubbles, which is what I believe is most likely, um, should, you know, what, what should we do? How should we respond to that? And we're going to talk to David excuse me, to Kevin Duffy uh, in the second half of today's show, uh, looking for some guidance from him on that. Also, you know, why have the Austrians have been so wrong in the last number of years? Why have we Austrians been on the wrong side of the market? If Austrian economics is such a great discipline, if it's so helpful uh, to us investors, then, you know, where have we gone wrong? Um, questions uh, we want to ask Kevin, uh, should, is gold still relevant? Is it something that we should still look to own? Uh, what are the risks of uh, short selling in markets like this? Uh, if we believe that asset prices are going to plunge, then certainly short selling would, be, would seem to be the right thing to do. Uh, but we'll ask Kevin about that. Is this an opportunity to make money right now? Or is it just a good time to make sure you don't lose money? Well, as I say, we'll be seeking Kevin Duffy's answer to the first question and the second, uh, and the second question during this second segment of today's discussion. Uh, and we will be uh, talking to Michael Oliver as soon as we come back from the break. We do have to go uh, to commercial break right now. But when we come back, Michael, uh, thankfully, has agreed to join us today. And we'll get his views on these very important markets like the equity and stock or the, let's say the, the debt and equity, precious metals and commodity markets. Uh, Michael, I think is pretty much in sync, at least uh, right now, with, um, with uh, Dr. McHugh, uh, not necessarily on the uh, severity of McHugh's views, but uh, just in terms of the, uh, of the turn, the general direction of these major markets. But in any event, we'll talk to Michael, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. 
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Michael Oliver. I haven't talked to Michael in some time. He's a regular guest on this show. Uh, he is a, a technical analyst that has uh, re- really cut his teeth many years ago uh, with the likes of E.F. Hutton, um, International Commodity Division. He has been a uh, an advisor to other uh mainstream large international financial concerns over the years most recently more recently i should say wachovia banks a trust department and uh so welcome michael i'm really glad that you could be back with us again today good to be back Jay. good to be back and i should tell our listeners again remind them uh, to keep up with what you're doing and also to learn more about your service they should go to olivermsa.com oliver m is in mary s is in sam a is in albert OliverMSA.com. Well, Michael, you know, you and I have been talking now for, I don't know, a year and a half or so on this show, I suppose. And, uh, you know, I'm a student of geology, so that whole picture of plate tectonics, the shifting of, of major markets and major plates that you talk about some time ago, about a, you felt that we were nearing a major tectonic shift in markets like stocks, bonds, precious metals, and commodities. Now, on September 16th, you uh, put out a missive titled, Higher Long Rates on the Way, Good Night to Central Banks. Now, by that, did you mean that interest rates will rise no matter what the Fed tries to do, no matter what the Fed and other central banks try to do? I think that in piecemeal layers over the last, oh, since early this year, uh, the central banks have begun to lose control over markets. Mm. Uh, and so the the myth that accompanies that, the religion based around you know, the Fed put idea, uh, is starting to crumble. Uh, the first evidence came when the European bond markets, uh, this would be Germany, France, Italy, Spain, so forth, uh, their debt instruments, which had been driven to extraordinarily low interest rate levels, you know, where Italian bonds were yielding less than U.S. notes, so it's, yeah. you know, a comparable duration. Uh, that changed dramatically in uh, March, April. There was a mini crash in those markets where the yields shot up, prices dropped, and they've really not gone back to where they were before. So that 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 uh, major stumble was and that was not policy by the ECB, by the way. That was not what uh-huh. they wanted. Uh, so the markets got freed; they cut their tethers. 
now there's more to go, but I, I think the rise in long rates, and I don't mean high-yielding debt markets, because those are rising sharply right now. We know yeah. that the high-yield market is rising. It's the safe stuff, like the, the U.S. T-bonds, T-notes, the German Bund. Uh-huh. Uh, those markets that people fly to when the equity markets get rattled. And sure enough, in, in the last several months, we've seen a sharp rise in U.S. T-bonds, for example, drop in yields. Uh, and the bonds have stabilized and firmed up. Uh, not because of any great merit in those instruments or that rates should be that low. Uh, it's that those are flight-to-safety instruments still. I suspect after the first major low of the first wave of the stock decline, which I do not think we've seen yet, mm-hmm. that at that point the rush of money to get into T-bonds and to bonds for safety will abate. And at that point, then the drop in yields in those safe long-term instruments will shift the other way. Prices will start back down. Rates will start to rise. And at that point forward, and I suspect this is sometime early next year, we'll see this, you'll start to see long rates rise naturally, regardless of central bank uh, wishes to the contrary. What we're talking about here is not the high yield, but we're talking about the the stuff that's under their control, supposedly. I think we'll start to see a rise in long rates. Uh, that's one of the big plate shifts out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, stocks, have well, that, been, as far uh, as I'm concerned, stocks have done it. You know, they, well, they that's, shifted. That's really interesting because what I think what what I hear you saying then, Michael, is that the markets uh, will at that point possibly be losing confidence in the in the ability of central banks to uh, to orchestrate uh, good times. That's right. I think it's 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 not a push button situation where everybody suddenly says, "Oh my gosh, uh, it doesn't work anymore." It's a phasing thing. If smart money realizes it first, and then pretty soon the mob realizes it, and then everybody wants out the door, whatever the door might be at that point, whether we're talking about the bond market or the equity markets and so forth. Uh, so there's a lot of big movement. I'm not talking just net price movement either or net yield movement going on. It's also the relative performance of these asset categories when you measure them on a relative spread basis. Not not look at gold price, but look at gold price in relation to the S&P. Uh, not look at the Bloomberg Commodity Index, what it's doing up or down net price, but it's spread relationship, relative performance to the S&P, which is bottoming clearly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we're not far from a major breakout. Mm, uh, meaning interesting. after years of decline in commodity prices, relative, not just in net terms, but relative to the S&P, that is shifting, and it's measurable. And I think that's uh, the argument of further deflation because of these distortions that have been created over especially the last five years. I think it's run its course pretty much in the commodity area. Now it's going to rotate to the equity arena and, and probably also to the long bonds and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we've already started to see the evidence of that, in, for instance, the S&P recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd I just like to remind uh, you know uh, my listeners, and, and one of the things, Michael, that, I really, uh, that really makes you so valuable to me in my thinking is that you know, you you have both a you have a sense of as much as anybody I know of the fundamentals, but you're not judging your act your your investment decisions strictly on your perception of the fundamentals. You're looking to the technicals, that the really the technicals to verify and to tell you what's really going on. You don't trust your sense of what the markets are doing. You're letting the uh, the collective wisdom of the market speak to you. But at the same time, you have a narrative for what you see happening in the uh, in the markets overall, and I really, really do appreciate that. You know, I would like to mention that on, on September twentieth, you wrote to your subscribers that QE sponsored bull market in stocks is over. 
But you know, Michael, I read in the New York Times today on uh, talking about the Monday's stock performance. It said, stock soared on bad economic news because it suggested the Fed would wait even longer before raising interest rates. So, you know, obviously, at least as as of yesterday, the market still thought the Fed would continue to print money, keep stocks higher, keep the good times rolling. So what what are your technical what is your technical work telling you that convinces you the party in stocks uh, is almost certainly over? Well, I, I measure via long-term momentum uh, metrics, not, not just price chart stuff. I, I, I convert price to momentum. And the trend there is clearly destroyed. The momentum trend is, is just blown off the page. Uh, and it's, it usually will lead price. In other words, you'll see a momentum breakdown or a turn up, and then price will, like a puppy dog, follow it. Uh, and there may be a time lag. Uh, momentum already started to deteriorate in January, broke a lot of stuff. And then we went up to, uh, had a predicted high for the year 2130. That's where we went twice. They went up there. Uh, and then in August, uh, we dropped through a number that I thought was the final, final number. If you hit it, it's over. And it was 2041, to be precise. After we hit that number in the next eight market trading hours, the S&P dropped 174 points. Mm. Uh, so it tended to validate my number. I think that the top is in place, and all the gyrations we're seeing for the last month and now going into the second month here of October is noise. I think mm-hmm. it's congestion way off the highs that mm-hmm. is designed to, uh, if you want a psychological reason for it, to make the scare the bears, especially those who got short late, and make the bulls feel comfy. I think, I suspect, and I said this in the last weekend's report, that this rally based on that Fed put assumption caused by mm-hmm. that rotten unemployment report, mm-hmm. um, oh, the Fed will never drop, uh, raise rates now because of, you know, yeah. the, the numbers are breaking down. Th- that is the last one you'll ever see of any quality. And when, that, when the market goes back through the lows again, let's call it the you know, 1880, 1870 lows that we made in August, when you penetrate those lows, you know, whether it's next month or what, that those people who bought for the last time based on the Fed put will finally give it up. They'll uh, say, oh, it didn't work. This time mm-hmm. we didn't go to a new high based on that. Well, that may, yeah, it that makes sense. Again, uh, uh, collectively, more and more people lose confidence, and then uh, the, uh, the, the boat tips the other way, I guess. Um, regarding gold, you, you know, last, I think it was when the last couple of weeks or so, last week or so, you... Uh, you suggested committing 75% of the maximum amount that you would allocate to gold, that you want to allocate to gold in the future. Uh, what is your work telling you now that is, is continuing to bolster your confidence in the gold market? Well, it continues to behave well. I mean, it can, you know, anytime it, uh, it, it it's, it's not completed the base yet. I think completing the base, as far as I'm concerned, is to get a monthly close and a price action up in the low 1200s, between 1206 and 1210. I've got a lot of numbers. That's uh, 50 some odd dollars above where today's high is. Um, the process of getting to the final momentum breakout level is almost always, whether it's a topping process or a bottoming process, in this case, a bottoming process, uh, an arm wrestling match. And so, you know, as you accumulate positive indications, they don't all instantly turn into a party. You know, you know, just explode $200. Now, there is a point at which I think gold is open for that potential. And I think it's once you get beyond the, uh, the low 1200s. Uh, I've got various numbers I put in my reports for various indicators. that, But they're all between, let's say, 1205 and 1210. And if we can get up in that area um, during the current quarter or especially this month, I think at that point the... Uh, the arm wrestling match shifts very dramatically. And you could get some speed on the upside at that point. Much like the S&P 
going through that 2041 level in August, suddenly instead of having this arm wrestling action that we'd had in the S&P all year long, bam, the market sheds yeah. you know, 175 points or so. Uh, yeah. And I, I think gold could be facing that as well if it can get up into the low 1200s. Well, the arm wrestling uh, picture is, is, is an interesting one. It seems to make a lot of sense because, you know, once you get past a certain point, boom, the arm goes right down level mm-hmm. to the table, right? And, uh, and you know, Dr. McHugh, who uh, I talk about on this show and he's been on a few times, uh, is steadfastly uh, suggesting that we're going to see or he thinks we'll see 1450 in the gold market before the end of the year. That seems impossible right now if you look at where it is. But, uh, you know, using that arm wrestling picture uh you could you could kind of see that if you get through the resistance levels and there's no no stopping it perhaps for a while uh just one more with yeah go ahead no i I agree with that yes totally yeah just with with, uh, the next 30 seconds to a minute maybe we can go that long Uh, talk about silver i think you're turning quite bullish on silver and we know that silver does better than gold in when the precious metals enters a bull market does does not so well compared to gold in a bear market for precious metals but what are your what's your work telling you now about silver you, you seem to be turning quite bullish on silver yeah silver is uh, actually a bit ahead a bit closer to its major breakout levels than is gold of course you want you want to see both of them break out you want to see gold clear that low 1200 zone uh, but silver today got up over sixteen dollars and my, my highest number is about sixteen twelve uh-huh. 16.12, if I could close a month there or higher. Uh, we traded over 16 uh, today. So it's actually chafing at the bit to break out first. And the spread is changing. In other words, the amount of ounces of silver it takes to buy an ounce of gold uh, at the peak of the bull market back in 2011, it only took 40 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. That changed to the point where recently we've had as much as 77 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. That's mm-hmm. starting to change. <clears throat> so the fewer ounces, it's now down to about 72 uh, and the spread looks like it's about to change, meaning if it changes, it indicates that silver is going to outperform gold, and that's exactly what you want to see if you think there's a bull market precious metals coming. And I All think right. that evidence is starting to show itself. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael. We're out of time. It always goes so fast with you. Thank you again for sharing your wisdom and your time with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again hopefully next week or, or sometime very soon uh, in the future. Thank you. It. Thank you so much. And again, folks, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to follow up uh, with the the work of Michael Oliver. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to come right back after the break. I'm going to be with Kevin Duffy, hedge fund manager, who has some... uh, a lot of, I think, very important things to say about where Austrian economics went wrong in this market. Uh, certainly, Michael Oliver is an, is an Austrian school thinker, uh, and uh, he, he did pretty well during this market. But uh, Kevin has some comments and also some ideas about how we might uh, best protect ourselves and do well uh, in the economic storms that appear to be uh, just ahead of us. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Kevin Duffy. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Calinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. 
Kalanex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalanex by visiting Kalanex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X.ca. Kalanex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Kevin Duffy with me today. Kevin was on, I believe, once before with his partner, uh, Bill Lagner. Uh, they, uh, Bill and Kevin uh, run the Bearing Fund. It's a hedge fund that uh, did extremely well during the, uh, during the financial crisis in uh, 2008, 2009. Uh, has not done as well uh, over the last six years or so during the bull market. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we want to talk to Kevin about today is, you know, we're uh, using and applying an Austrian uh, model, a business uh, or uh, economic model. Uh, where did some of us, including yours, truly go wrong over the last number of years? We've had this tremendous tripling of the stock market and we've, uh, you know, and the things that are held near and dear to the lovers of free markets, uh, honest money, for example, gold and silver, uh, didn't do very well at all. In fact, we've had some pretty horrific markets over the last couple of years. But in any event, Kevin and uh, Bill humbly acknowledge that things have not gone as well over the last six years as they did uh, during those uh, during the financial crisis. And what we want to do with Kevin today is examine some of the reasons and some of the flaws in, in the thinking, perhaps, and, and, and then use that as a uh, as a way of preparing ourselves uh, as best we can for what might lie ahead of us right now. So welcome, Kevin. I'm really glad that you could join us today. I'm glad to be here, Jay. Always uh, always good to talk to you. Bill is uh, was on just recently and uh, did a great job. He always does, and uh, the two of you make a terrific team. Uh, you know, this, this show, this radio show, has prided itself and indeed uh, has marketed itself as a champion of Austrian economics, and my first show was back on March, uh, I don't know, second or third week of March in 2009, which was just about the bottom of the uh, of the bear market uh, of that uh, tr- tragic decline, 2008-2009. And since then, I've I've been championing, continuing to champion Austrian economics. I still believe in Austrian economics. The very basic premise 
of malinvestment and the notion of uh, you know that you need honest money and you send false signals to the market by printing money and all all the things that Austrians hold near and dear. Uh, timing is another issue, of course, but um, but in any event, we we want to examine you know questions that you recently raised in a speech that you gave, and that was uh, the, the title of that speech is "Where Did Austrian Economics Go Wrong the Past Six Years?" and and you noted to me. Uh, in a missive you sent to me, uh, the economy recovered seemingly, unemployment fell, supposedly, and uh, bailouts were supposedly effective in stemming uh, this uh, horrible experience we had 2008-2009. But you mentioned that worse, even worse than that, from an Austrian, for those of us who practiced uh, and tried to apply Austrian economics to the market, Austrian investing in gold stocks and short selling, those kind of things, uh, strategies were decimated uh, so we want to find out, you know, what went wrong, what have we learned, and does Austrian economics apply today, or is it just some goofy uh, idea that, um, you know, some Austrians come up with years ago? Um, so, right. l- first of all, let me ask you, do you think that the, how much, to what extent do you think the economy really has recovered, Kevin, since, you know, since 2008, 2009? I mean, you get sort of conflicting ideas about it. The mainstream, of course, is championing the policies of the Federal Reserve, and uh, uh, but you know, we talked to, to John Williams and some other people, and they look at the economy and say, well, wait a minute, unemployment isn't, uh, the employment picture really isn't as rosy as the mainstream suggests, uh, and, and you know, and, and prices are really higher than the mainstream suggests, but what, what is your sense of it? How, how real has this economic recovery been? Yeah, I think if we go back to the bailouts, uh, and at the time, probably 70, 80% of the, of the people were opposed to the bailouts. And so there was a sense that, uh, uh, that intervention would not work, uh, that it should not be allowed to, to take place. And I think there was some skepticism, uh, uh among the people. Um, for them, it hasn't worked out so well. Um, for the true believers, it's worked out extremely well. Uh, mm-hmm. Those that that were running money, those that uh, uh, believed in uh, in central bank intervention, so the the asset uh, economy has done uh, has done exceptionally well, and the real economy not so well. Um, as my my friend Mike Polaro likes to point out, the economy today is really the asset economy. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, when when that rolls over, when when these asset bubbles start to burst, I think we're going to get a, a real good sense for what the what the economy looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this hugely leveraged global economy. Uh, you know, with malinvestment, we think of malinvestment in China with the empty cities and the bridges to nowhere. Of course, it's also true in the United States and around the world because we've had this sort of statist economic policies, uh, Keynesian economic policies, print money, go into debt. This is uh, really what the whole world seems to believe in. Uh, and, and so we've had, you know, the U.S. spends trillions of mil- trillions of dollars to uh, for weapons uh, to kill people and take over their countries and, and try to uh, establish its own ideas around the world and, is, uh, I guess, control of markets, whatever the motives are. So with all, all this debt, you know, it's my view, Kevin, that, that we are likely to see a, an implosion of the, uh, of the markets, of the equity markets, of these asset markets that you just referred to. Uh, on the other hand, I think most Austrians believe that we are probably heading inexorably towards some sort of hyperinflation event. I think of, you know, the likes of Peter Schiff, for example, very, right. very well known. What are your thoughts on this? Are we likely to see 
an implosion and then an explosion, or, or what, what do you think might happen? What's your best guess? Yeah, and uh, well, I think we can go back to six, seven years ago and, and uh, try to answer that question and then try to answer it today. Um, today, um, uh, I believe that it's e- a little bit easier to answer, and I think part of you know, going back and reflecting on where we went wrong um, six years ago it was more of a blank slate. Uh, the amount of, of uh, central bank balance sheet inflation was uh, unprecedented, and we just didn't know. I think maybe the mistake that we, we made as Austrians back then was thinking we knew more than, than we knew and thinking that monetary inflation uh, would predictably do certain things. I mean, we know it does bad things, but the path that it takes... Uh, I think it fooled everybody. I think we, we kind of split into, the, into two camps, as you mentioned, the, the deflationary bears and the inflationary bears. And I think to a certain extent, um, we've both been, been, uh, been wrong. Um, today, with the, the, uh, the asset bubble and with the, with the stock market bubbles uh, going as far as they have, number one, uh, it seems to be long in the tooth. But I think also... Um, Every bubble, and I mean, if we go back and look at the, we've had three bubbles in, in 20 years. Every bubble has its own underlying theme. Uh, the technology bubble had uh, the infatuation with the new economy and, and the Internet. Um, with the, the housing bubble, uh, it was the idea that uh, real estate never went down. You could have some regional downturns, but you could never have a national uh, uh, real estate bust, and that we could essentially lever the, the home. Uh, you know, this time, it's the idea of uh, stimulus, that we can stimulate our way out of these problems. And um, uh, I think, you know, China was the, uh, the big player at the margin. So the fact that uh, China blew their bubble, and they've had a series of bubbles, and now that is, is unwinding. And really, the commodity bubble peaked in, in 2011. Um, you know, this is already starting to play out. So we think that, that with each of these bubbles, there's an underlying theme, and uh, the, the marginal uh, cracks, the cracks start to appear in sort of the marginal areas where the, the worst uh, levels of malinvestment took place. And we're already seeing those. They're already very well ad- advanced uh, in terms of China. I mean, the, the commodity... Um, Demand and the commodity bubble peaked in, in uh, April, May of 2011, and here we are uh, four years later. Um, if you look at the last bubble, the housing and credit bubble, um, it was the, the house. Real estate started to decline in uh, the first quarter of uh, U.S. real estate started to decline in the first quarter of 2006. Well, the broad stock market didn't, didn't peak until really late 2007. Um, so that's why, that's, you know, those are several reasons why we think we're, we're uh, headed towards a uh, more of a deflationary bust at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, having, right. said that, having said that, uh, after the bust, we do believe that there will be, that gold will have its day and, and that there will be, you know, we could have a, a give up in the currency, a collapse of fiat currencies and, you know, all the things that the inflationary bears are talking about. But, um, but first things first. Okay, so most immediately, you think we're likely to see a deflationary, let's say, using the term deflationary, of course, is, is troublesome to Austrian economists. So we, we, let's say a price deflation. 
uh, or not necessarily a monetary deflation. Correct. Yeah, um, so, yeah. and, and really what we're talking about primarily is a, uh, uh, yes. It, we could an asset, have, asset price deflation. A, an asset deflation, and you could have a price deflation, uh, and a wage deflation. You could have all these things, a debt deflation, um, alongside of a monetary inflation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Yeah, indeed. I, I think, you know, in thinking back uh, of John Exter's work, that, that that pretty much is what he has always, had always been predicting would happen. Uh, he couldn't have imagined, I, I'm guessing, that he would have, that we would have ever seen an asset balance, uh, a central bank balance sheet exploding as this one has. But that was always John's premise in uh, uh, that that's where we would go. And he, I think he was pretty much an Austrian economist. He definitely was a personal friend of von Mises himself. And uh, uh, they apparently had arguments about this uh, from time to time, from what I understand. And uh, Extra's son-in-law, who I know, uh, in, in any event, as an aside. Um, all right, so what, what, let, so did we, is Austrian economics, you know, Kevin, these ideas of malinvestment and the things we talk about all the time, are they just, is this just, pure baloney it doesn't apply anymore or, or where did we go wrong here why did we why did those of us who steadfastly adhered to the favorite asset classes of, of Austrian go wrong well I think you know let's start out with uh, first of all as a group Austrians really um, nailed the housing and, and credit bubble um, mm-hmm. and and so maybe we suffered from a little bit of, of overconfidence but um, <laughs> But then I, I think we, uh, you know, we split into these two camps, and perhaps uh, one of the mistakes that was made was the, the thinking that, that this was predictable, that the path that the monetary inflation would take, that it would, it would naturally go into price inflation, and that that would, um, that would then translate into higher gold prices. And, um, and I think really the... the, uh, the, the the defining moment came down to uh, the commodity boom in uh, from 2010 to 2011, and uh, and China uh, mm-hmm. was China was it real um, and was the demand for commodities real and sustainable and was the price inflation that was showing up in commodities uh, was that was that real or uh, and this is essentially I think what uh, a lot of the uh, the inflationary uh, bears were arguing, and uh, or was it malinvestment, um, and that uh, this was not necessarily confirmation that uh, that the price of gold uh, would be going up, and I think this is what the deflationary bears were were arguing. Um, you know, right now it it looks like the the deflationary bears at least got that that part of it right. All right, so China, the cracks that you're talking about in this bubble. Uh, occurring in 2011. Of course, we, we've seen that. Those of us that were invested in gold shares and, and commodities in general have really suffered since then. Uh, why, you know, the, the Keynesians, of course, and, you know, we think of Paul Krugman and those kinds uh, are, are suggesting, well, we just didn't do enough. I mean, this is always the argument. The argument was always in the 1930s, it didn't, it didn't really, it didn't work. Uh, stimulus did not work. But Hey, we just didn't do it effectively enough, and same every time. That's the argument, right? Uh, why don't? Why might they not come back with you know something, even larger stimulus, and create another another boom of some sort? Yeah, uh, you know, they and that's the thing. They can always make that argument, um, but 
I, I looked at some of the debt buildups over the last three bubbles, and um, the, the first was the technology bubble, and this is in terms of where malinvestment shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a trillion dollars in telecom debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the, um, the 2007 credit bubble, um, $10 trillion in mortgage debt. Now, this doubled over a five-year period. Of course, a lot of that was malinvestment. Uh, sure. This, this time, China, the total debt in China is $25 trillion. <laughs> the, the total, and that's, that's up, um, uh, that, that's gained about uh, $20 trillion just in the last uh, uh, seven years or so, seven or eight <laughs> years, and up from, apparently up from $1 trillion in 2000. So it's an so, exponential growth in, in uh, funny money and debt. Right. And it's not just China, but I mean, that gives you an idea when you look at the, the idea that each of these bubbles has a, an underlying theme, and you look at what's happening with each bubble is they're, just, they're going parabolic in terms of the amount of debt. Um, you, you, uh, you also see uh, that you know, each bubble, history, you know, as, as Twain said, history uh, doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And, um, you know, what we're seeing is that, that uh, not everybody is getting each of these bubbles. They don't just show up and looking exactly the same. They look very, right. very different. And, right. uh, you know, this is, I think this is what's going on this time uh, as, as well. Um, the, the, each bubble, the last bubble, um, really sort of implicated the political class. It was the banks. The banks are the ones that got themselves into trouble. They didn't get into so much trouble. With a trillion dollars in telecom debt, the banking system didn't get into a lot of trouble in 2000. Uh, it was more of the private sector, and it was more of the public investor, the retail investor, who, uh, who got into trouble. But um, in 2007, it was, it was more of the, the banking system, uh, the um, the Goldmans, well, of course, Merrill Goldman survived, but uh, but Merrill and and uh, the the uh, talk about the political class. How about the uh, government sponsored enterprises? Well, for sure, uh, yeah. Now this this bubble, um, the government has already basically written a big check to to bail everybody out. The problem is that now um, sovereign. Uh, this bubble, um, it's really, the last time uh, it was more uh, consumer debt and, and mortgage debt that was, was going up. This time it's corporate debt and sovereign debt. And, you know, I think we're, we're reaching the limits in terms of how, how deep the government's pockets really are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how, it, it'll be a challenge for them to uh, the next time. I mean, imagine we get another bust, you know, a la 2008. And uh, the uh, uh, the people that got bailed out the last time are, are going going back to the government with uh, with the tin cup in hand. Um, I mean, the last time we had what seventy or eighty percent of the population was opposed to the bailouts. And can you imagine they did not participate in this recovery? Uh, imagine the backlash that would would take place. So I, I yeah. think we're at more at the end game, Jay. Well, you raise a good question. I mean, uh, you know, you're you're up the food chain here, and who's going to bail out the sovereigns? Exactly. 
I mean, and the sovereigns go down, and we were just talking to Mike Oliver about this. This is a confidence game. The confidence game, he, he believes that uh, interest rates are going to have, have started rising already and are, are that the Fed, the central banks, are losing control of interest rates. He thinks it's the very early stages of that. I don't know if you're, what your thoughts are on that, but if that's the case and uh, you know, the central banks lose control and the markets are saying we don't have confidence any longer in this system – so who's going to bail out the sovereigns? There's nobody left. That's the idea, I guess, you're, you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it, yeah. it also uh, will present some, uh, some very interesting short opportunities. Well, we want to talk to you some more about some of these opportunities and ways to, uh, to try to protect yourself and, and uh, if possible, to make some money uh, by, you know, through some foresight about markets and, and what's going to happen and what we think will happen. And, and I don't know how much time. We're, we've only got about seven or eight minutes left today. And I, you and I are going to get together and talk again about some of those more, you know, about concrete ways that we can uh, that we can profit from from these markets, these impending changes that are taking place, and we're going to be uh, we're going to be providing that to my listeners at J Taylor Media next Monday. Uh, you and I will do a recording this weekend to discuss those ide- those ideas. Uh, but as far as we're going right now, then uh, you know, factoring in the lessons of the last six years, you know, so it's pretty certain it seems that that we're getting close, but Close is a relative idea. I mean, a relative thing. Uh, is, is it six months, a year, two years away, Kevin? Yeah, and the answer is that I, I don't know. I mean, that's the no best one knows. answer. And and I think you know maybe one of the lessons that that uh, we learned, and we'll get into this uh, when when we do our our segment on Saturday, Jay. I guess mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, you know it's not. It's not a stock market. It's not, uh, it, it, you know, really is a market of stocks, a market of, of businesses and, and industries. And, you know, I think what happens, uh, to, to borrow uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, you know, the author of Fool by Randomness, his, his uh, terms, uh, robustness and fragility, uh, that, um, you know, we go through these cycles. And, uh, and this is where, during the boom time, this is a very Austrian concept. I mean, this is where... Uh, the sins are committed, and this is the destructive part of of the uh, the, the the cycle. Um, and what happens is that uh, some companies uh, will uh, will drink the Kool Aid, and they yes. and so you have fragility getting into the system. Um, but uh, you'll and you could even it, it's not just uh, companies. You could look at uh, at homeowners. Look look at the uh, housing bubble the last time. Not everybody went out and became a uh, uh, a real estate mogul and and uh, you know bought bought five houses on on uh, on uh, on credit. Um, yes. you know, some people took the, the the low interest rates and they uh, they refinanced and they basically put that money in their pocket and they saved it and they were uh, were very responsible. So you know it really comes down to a lot of sort of sifting through and and looking at what types of, of businesses are, are are good businesses what types are are fragile companies that have have drunk the Kool-Aid and you know so a lot of it I think this is a big mistake of just trying to kind of time the market and worry about when is this going to happen instead of look where is it happening where are we getting the malinvestment 
you know, we're seeing it in certain areas like, you know, for example, the auto finance area. Uh, we talked about the sovereign debt area. Maybe, maybe the municipal bond market is not as safe as, as everybody thinks. Okay, so, um, you know, you have municipal bond insurers uh, that they would be vulnerable. So you, that's the sort of thing that you, that you look for. Um, but it's, it's not a black and white, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's just short the, the market. I think, that was, I think that's a mistake that we made, quite frankly, uh, after, after uh, 2008, 2009, Mm-hmm. And, you know, where we made our money in 2000, we, we actually did very, very well in our fund in 2007 before the market collapsed because this is where you had individual companies in the credit sector already breaking down. Mm-hmm. Quite, the, the, keep in mind, remember um, the subprime bubble, uh, subprime market, that bubble uh, burst in uh, March of, of uh, 2007 you know, well before the broad market peaked. And I think, Jay, what's going on this time, it's, it's very similar. Um, I, saw, I saw something, uh, had it in my, my notes here, uh, 100, and, 100 companies, over 100 of the S&P 1500 stocks have fallen more than 50%, and 600 are down more than 25% from the high. Wow. Okay, so, you know, even though we're not, the, the S&P 500 is not down very much, you know, what we're seeing is in these areas that we've identified as malinvestment and, and businesses that have taken on a lot of debt are drinking the Kool-Aid, you are already see, you're already seeing a tremendous amount of damage. And, you know, as short sellers, that's, that's where the opportunity is. So we try not to get too caught up in the timing and the broad market. Well, certainly, uh, in looking at this market now, the sentiment, I talk about everybody getting uh, moving over to one side of the boat. Uh, some of the statistics that you brought to my attention are just absolutely mind-boggling. I, looking at the hedge funds, uh, you say there are 8,431 hedge funds, only 17 are sh- in a short position. I mean, I, that's unbelievable. That's, that's, that's almost nobody. Absolutely. Everybody, it's not just a few people drinking the Kool-Aid. Everybody seems to be drinking the Federal Reserve's and, and uh, you know, the Federal Reserve's Keynesian Kool-Aid. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there was uh, an article in, uh, actually, where I got that statistic, Jay, was uh, there was an article in the New York Times in June, um, June, of 2000, June 22nd of this year, and the title was The Loneliness of the Short Seller. And it talked about uh, money that was flowing out of short-biased funds. And, of course, this has been probably, other than the, uh, the precious metals area, uh, it's been the worst space in terms of, I know, in terms of mutual funds and probably hedge funds as well over the last five years. Um, but the, the article talked about just how difficult it is to be a short seller today. And... Uh, you know, there's a certain uh, contrari- contrarianness to uh, to the markets, and uh, you know, when I I remember, I, I'll give you an example. Faber, Mark Faber, talked about uh, 1981, I believe. Um, this was when when bond yields uh, were at 15 percent, and uh, you know, everybody was talking about inflation and that the the bond market. Uh, Treasury bonds were called instruments of confiscation, and he uh, was giving um, a, uh, a breakout session uh, at one of these conferences, 
basically as a, a being bullish on bonds. And he said, um, in the uh, next store, I think it was probably uh, they were talking about gold or tangible assets, standing room only. He had one person show up. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that's the way it is. And 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 Kevin, we, we're running out of time here, but I just have to say that it seems to me it makes for a very volatile uh, environment. I mean, everybody's on one side, but when things change, they could change very, very rapidly. I remember, you know, my friend David Tice going on television, taking a bearish position, uh, you know, before the before the last collapse. And uh, so, you know, you're you're out there doing this, and I, I want to applaud you and and thank you very much for for coming on the show today. We we just are out of time, unfortunately, but we will be talking to you some more. Uh, we'll be recording something this weekend, uh, helping people to understand how they can best position themselves for the difficulties that are arising ahead. I want to thank you so much for being with me today, Kevin, and uh, and I'll talk to you again uh, this weekend. Uh, and pass that on to our listeners uh, on Monday, most likely, at jtaylormedia.com. jtaylormedia.com. Go to the podcast button to uh, to hear what Kevin has to say about the application of his comments today. Thank you very much for being with me, Kevin. Uh, n- next week, I'll be talking to another hedge fund manager. His name is Dave Kranzler. Uh, and I'll also be talking to the CEO of Vino Silver and Gold Mines. It's a company that has managed to earn a profit even during this bear market. So uh, I look forward to talking to you, uh, all of you again then. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.